like physics, philosophy, you know, is or should be very, very fundamental. I mean, the difference is that in that, in a way, whatever you might be interested in, if you take it down to the most fundamental level, it becomes kind of philosophy. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose. Robinson Earhart with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 78. And this episode is with a real bona fide sweetheart, Paul Horwich, who is professor of philosophy at NYU. And Paul has worked in a number of areas, many areas, which I often find myself saying because of how fortunate I am to have such esteemed guests. But Paul started off working in philosophy of physics and science, but has become especially well-known and very, very, very highly regarded for his work in the philosophy of language, particularly his work on truth and meaning. Naturally, he has books by the same name, uh, Truth and Meaning, and also his writings on Wittgenstein's philosophy of language. And In this episode, Paul and I talk about the relationship between his early work on the philosophy of physics and his later work on truth and meaning, because I just found it fascinating as I was looking through his background that he seemed to be, he started off his career investigating the minutiae of the world on on a physical level. And then later on in his career, he started, he was researching the most abstract possible things. I, I suppose being might be more abstract than truth and meaning, but truth and truth and meaning are, are still quite abstract. And after, after we recorded this, Paul visited Stanford Uh, Not for me, of course. He was here to give a lecture, a very nice lecture on Wittgenstein, but we ended up going out to dinner and he's he's just uh, such a sweet guy. And I I can't stress that enough. Now, I also have to mention that leaving reviews, likes, all of these things are endlessly appreciated. I would love it if you checked out my other channel, Robinson Eats, in which I eat a pint of ice cream every morning and talk with whoever is there, though I understand if uh, that doesn't get you as excited as it gets me. And you should also, if you know Paul, if you're in New York, uh, let him know how much you enjoyed this conversation. And without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, as you will tell Paul you did, as much as I enjoyed having it with Paul. Paul, you started out working in physics at Oxford, which I think of kind of as studying the world at its most nitty-gritty, granular detail. Yet then you've spent much of the past 30 years working on the philosophy of truth and meaning, which are essentially the most abstract ways you could possibly get at the world. And Mm -hmm. I found this trajectory very striking. So what what is the sort of 
inquiry you see yourself as engaged in or the way that you look at the world that connects these two seemingly very distant pursuits? Well, let me, let me start out by going back even further in time. Please. When I was younger, you know, very young, I mean, you know, young teenager, 12 or something like that. I got uh, 13. I was, uh, I became very interested in chemistry. And I think it was because there was an old, very old friend, maybe distant relative of my father, who my father came from Poland. And he also, this guy came from Poland, who, who was actually a, you know, a scientist, a chemist, in fact, became a member of the Royal Society, a very distinguished, one of the first people to work on polymers. And uh, so I, I sort of got interested in that. And so I used was one of these kids, I don't know if they do it anymore, but I was, I had chemistry sets where you have the materials to, uh, to do kind of experiments and <clears throat> And I used to just buy more stuff and, uh, you know, really do uh, make dangerous gases and <laughs> have explosions at home. I used to make my own fireworks. Oh, that's and so always, awesome. Always amazed me that you could, at my age as a child, I could go into the local pharmacy and they would sell me anything like concentrated sulfuric acid. I mean, very dangerous stuff. (laughs) Nowadays, it would be unthinkable. But anyway, I was doing that, and I love doing that. I mean, I'm probably lucky to have all my fingers still. But anyway, I did it. Sounds like it. So it was a no-brainer for me when I applied. As you probably know, in England, when you want to go to university, it's not like here where you go, you let in, and then you do various courses, and then eventually you declare a major. No, there you have to say from the get-go what you want to do when you apply. And then you are accepted. If you're accepted, you're accepted to do that thing, and only that thing. So, uh, and I applied to do chemistry, and I was accepted to do chemistry. I mean, okay, I thought, oh, fine. Um but then there was a few months before the end of the school, you know, and, I, and I'd been admitted and when I'd actually start. So I, I somehow ended up bizarrely with a job working in a nuclear reactor in the north of England. And uh, I don't know, I did some experiments. And somehow, for some reason, I just started to think, you know, uh, I am very interested in science. Chemistry is great, but... Physics is even more fundamental. Right. And so, you know, that's the thing. And the physics and the mathematics, I thought, you know, so I I wrote to the college uh, in Oxford and I said, would it be okay? Could I possibly switch? Uh, You know, when I come, could I do physics? And they said, okay. So, uh, So that's what I did. Physics and mathematics. I had a physics tutor and a mathematics tutor. And um, that was good. But, uh, I, you know, the college had people, other kids, friends, I became friends with who came the same year as me doing different things, uh, some of them doing philosophy. And so, you know, we talked through the night as you do, as you, you know, and I would sort of thought, this is good stuff. And then, but then the real settling thing was that uh, I discovered there was something a genuine subject called philosophy of, there was something called philosophy of science, 
and there was something called philosophy of physics even. Right. So, uh, and I became somewhat captivated because in fact, of course, even these days, you know, sometimes the physics, you know, as a bunch of equations can be slightly frustrating. You know, you want to know, well, you know, what does that mean about the real structure of the world? What does Einstein mean if he says space is curved? What could that possibly be? You know, and uh, you've got quantum mechanics. Is the cat dead or alive? You know, oh, somehow in some soup, some both in some sense. I mean, it's just so you want, you know, so I was thinking, you know, really. So I resolved at some point that when I got my degree, I was going to move to physics. And simultaneously, I resolved that here I have no idea how it came to me. I certainly wasn't getting any advice from anyone. I thought I'm going to go to the US. So uh, I um, I happened, to, I happened to come across a brochure from the physics department at Yale saying that you could do philosophy of physics there. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's ideal. After all, I'm going to get a physics degree. They might let me in. And then I will do what I want to do. So I filled out the forms, you know, they let me in, they gave me a fellowship and I thought, great, you know, so I went over, it was, I remember going, it was some big boat coming from Southampton full of students, you know, I guess mostly Americans coming back from Europe after the summer, but also people like me maybe. And I got there at Yale and I had a meeting with the director of the graduate studies in uh, in physics department and uh, told him again what I wanted to do. He said, I'm sorry, you can't do that. Uh, he said, um, you know, when when you reach the thesis writing stage, yes, then we have some people you could work with. But first of all, it's two years of coursework in physics. Those are the rules here. And I said, oh, God, I really don't want to do that, you know, and, and, uh, and he became so angry with me. I mean, almost brought me to tears. <laughs> he accused me yeah. of getting my fellowship under false pretenses, which in fact, is it just was just ignorance and naivety. I know I wouldn't do that such a thing deliberately. And uh, so I had to do the, uh, the physics in the first semester. And while I was there, I was auditing some, I was sitting in on some classes in the philosophy department. And then in the second semester, they took me into the philosophy department. So I was finished with that physics. But the philosophy department was really not what it used to be there. It used to be a very distinguished department. They'd lost a lot of people to, to illness, deaths, retirements, people taking other jobs. And they'd only had things like the history of philosophy, you know, or existentialism phenomena. So I wasn't, it wasn't the kind of rigorous kind of philosophy that I you know, this more Anglo-American, you know, uh, in a way more like science. You have to be very clear. You have to give solid arguments for what you're claiming and so on. I, and so I, I knew I, I wasn't settled. I had to, you know, I had to go somewhere else. I had no idea, no advice. It was so random. You'll think it's stupid and ridiculous, but I just <laughs> happened to be at some point when I'm trying to decide what to do, I was listening to a song by uh, Simon and Garfunkel. And somehow in one of the lines of the song were the words, Berkeley and Cornell. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds good. Why don't I fly to Berkeley and Cornell? 
And uh, Berkeley never sent me back. I requested the forms, never got them back. Cornell sent me the forms for me to apply. I applied. They let me in. And uh, I went there and I was absolutely perfectly, I was so happy to be there. I mean, Ithaca is a kind of a, you know, a one-horse town with nothing to do, but I didn't care about that. I was finally doing, you know, immersed in the subject. I, and I, you know. Philosophy I, of science. Well, yeah, I was, had no interest, but in fact, I just swallowed up everything that was being taught, you know, whatever it was, ethics, you know, lots of things. In fact, the first publication I ever had was something I wrote, you know, in the first semester, actually. Uh, I never, it was about uh, utilitarianism, ethics. So I would just like the whole, I like the kind of thinking, you know, because like physics, philosophy, you know, is or should be very, very fundamental. I mean, the difference is that in that, in a way, whatever you might be interested in, if you take it down to the most fundamental level, it becomes kind of philosophy. So uh, it's good for a dilettante. I mean, you can really move around in the subject, as I have, you know. So, uh, you know, I, when I when I left Cornell, I, you know, I meant to go back to my own country, England, and uh, there weren't any jobs with bad economics. I ended up getting a job at MIT, and I was hired to do philosophy of physics. And uh, that's what I mainly taught there for, and philosophy of science. But then at some point, I just thought, you know, started to branch out. And uh, the, the, the good thing was they, the, the faculty felt that um, some of the graduate, many of the graduate students were not being properly educated or they weren't, they didn't have the right kind of background. And there were certain things in philosophy that no matter what they wanted to specialize in, every graduate student in philosophy should have read blah, 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 a bunch of things. So they decided they were going to introduce, it's actually become, even done here these days. The, the model for it was how they did it at MIT. Um, it would be something called the pro seminar. Yeah, we have that here. Required for all the graduate first year graduate students, and and the way it was done there, there were two three hour meetings a week, and we made their way through the through the literature. I mean, usually starting around Frege, so it wasn't real history, but still go back a hundred years or so, and. Uh, and I volunteered to uh, to do it, even though I knew nothing about those matters. But then I thought, I need to know something. And so I'm going to learn it alongside with, uh, you know, when I'm getting ready to teach the students. And so, uh, and that's where, you know, the ultimate origin of things like my interest in eventually... Truth, like, meaning. Of truth and meaning yeah. and, and lots of other stuff. And I just continued that, you know, wherever uh, eventually I did uh, get back to England and um, stayed at MIT for 22 years. Hmm. And I liked it there very much. I mean, in the beginning, I thought, why am I in an institute of technology? I'm a philosopher, you know, but then they had a great department of philosophy and uh, the institute is very well run place. So I was 
and I like Cambridge, Boston area. So I, I, nothing really was wrong with it. I just did think, you know, you only live once and um, I should see life in my own country. My mother was still alive. And so uh, I went and I went to live in London. I lived, I got a job in London, which I also didn't know because I come from the north of England. But London is great. And um, I enjoyed being back in England. That was, uh, you know, but I only uh, came back to the US because they had these very strict, uh, you know, retirement laws at the age of 65 as thank you very much, go home. <laughs> I wasn't, didn't fancy that. So I, I actually first came to uh, City University of New York, the Graduate Center, and then you know, some years later, moved to NYU. So uh, you, oh. so you said that this this really jumped out at me. Like physics, uh, philosophy should be fundamental. And yeah. so, on the one hand, you were studying physics, sort of how I initially framed this question. You were studying physics, which gets at the world in a very fundamental sense. Yeah. And then, on the other hand, truth and meaning are very fundamental. But do you think of them as? maybe getting at language or what is it that you are studying truth and meaning in reference to? Well, I think the, you know, what the, the line of the, the process for me was, uh, um, you know, beginning say with philosophy of science, you know, so philosophy of science is, uh, Obviously, you're trying to make discoveries. What are the fundamental laws? What explains what? You know, and uh, and uh, I remember. So you know, seem so the, there are, of course, is, interesting issues. What exactly is the method of science, and why? You know, how does it manage to make these discoveries? I mean, why why does it have the authority it does, and how come it works so well? You know, so. But I remember, I think it was when I was maybe still at uh, MIT, I don't remember now exactly, but a book came out that took people by storm a bit by uh, a guy called Bas Van Frassen at Princeton. And uh, and he, he made a strong argument, it's called anti-realism, that, um, that uh, you cannot get at the truth the scientific method is not going to give you the truth. And he, he has a, an argument, basically, roughly speaking, a very a nub of it, I mean, going a bit fast, but that, uh, that if you've got a theory, a physical theory, and it, you know, explains all the data, fits the data perfectly, predicts things, you know, everything. Uh, he argued that uh, whenever you have such a theory, you could always contrive another one that would do this, do it, do it just as well. So, so it would be just as well supported as the first one. So, how could you? You could be unreasonable to just pick one rather than another, which you can't tell which one is the true one. So, you have to just give up on the idea that truth is, uh, you know, a value here, and you should be trying to pursue the truth. How is it that you create? a second theory that perfectly fits the data as well? You just sort of append some sort of like vacuous statement to it or? No, how... well, I don't think that would be very, if you did that, that wouldn't be very convincing. Right. No, I think he had some examples of things where, um, I mean, 
uh, like I think one of these examples came from Ida Einstein and the general theory that, uh, you know, you could have, um, you could, you could hang on to Euclidean geometry and then you'd have a certain physical theory and together they would explain things, Mm -hmm. explain everything. Or alternatively, you could use a different geometry and that would actually enable you to have a different, a simpler physics that would still explain everything the same, you know, everything would get explained. So it would seem these two, uh, people used to say empirically equivalent, you know, and other people, Quine had some essay about empirically equivalent theories. And so, uh, Anyway, that, that kind of led me to, uh, of course, it's an interesting question anyway. I mean, it sounds deep and it is deep, you know, what is truth? Mm-hmm. What, I mean, it's a property and some, you know, some beliefs have it, other beliefs don't have it. So what is it? I mean, we can ask that kind of question about all sorts of things. You know, some things are magnetic, some things are not, you know, how, what's the difference? What is it that makes something magnetic? So what is it that makes something true? And of course, and the history of philosophy is full of, I mean, you know, tons of attempts to uh, say what it is to be true, give a kind of definition of the word true, you know, and there are all these, uh, yeah, but you know, when you look at them, they, they all have some problems. And so, uh, just became an interest in itself, you know, uh, yeah. just free of what the utility of it would be. Uh, just what, what, you know, what is the answer to that question, you know? And um, so, uh, you know, I just, uh, yeah. So the the way that von Frossen was talking about truth in the sense that a science might not get at the truth it doesn't yeah. sound like he was talking about truth as a predicate to me or a property well you know um seems like it was like a metaphysical sort of thing well but but i mean no i think uh um of course a predicate that's a part of speech you know there are nouns or predicates so it's true that's a predicate and nothing you can do about that. I mean, just, it's just, it is, I mean, but grammar, it's a matter of grammar. Uh, you say a certain belief, this entity is true, or this statement is not true. Well, you know, that's a predicate. Now, whether there's a property there, well, I think, um, uh, it's only, I mean, relatively recently, you know, with maybe coming along partly alongside with deflationism or people who are the beginning of that movement who would have said, well, maybe it's not a property. It's just some word that we're doing a lot of. So, uh, but, uh, you know, I'm not myself, I don't find myself interested in that. I mean, I, it's not, I just don't regard it as a sharp, I'm myself. And this is, I guess, a more of a, a Frigian idea. I'm inclined to think that, um, that, uh, you know, in a way we, we identify a property, 
as something that a predicate stands for, whereas an object is something that a name or a definite descriptions. So you have nominal expressions, and if they stand for anything at all, they're things of some kind, right. objects of some kind. Similarly, predicate, you know, if it designates anything at all, it designates a property. Which is why getting at the truth, I mean, the truth is treated sort of as a name that designates an object. Well, the truth, uh, I mean, you know, it sounds a funny expression. I know it's commonly used, but when you say the truth, of course, there is no just thinking of one thing, which is the truth. There's the, there's the question of whether such and such a thing is true. What's the truth of the matter concerning blah, blah, blah whether such and such is the case, you know, so there's a, it's, it's truth is the name of the property. And you can ask, uh, does that statement have it, have the property or not? Mm -hmm. And if so, what does it having it consist in? Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the definitions are supposed to say, I'm telling you, what is it for that thing to be true? And of course, the, the classical answer that was, you know, regarded as obvious, obviously correct for many, many, many years, a large part of the history of this discussion was that truth is a matter of corresponding to a fact. That's the property, the thing corresponds to a fact, it's true, and that's what truth is, being, you know, being in correspondence with a fact. Um, but, uh, but there were you know, when people started to get skeptical about that, even, you know, the early in the earlier 20th century, um, the Vienna Circle, you know, um, well, you know, <clears throat> yeah, if you want to give a definition, you have to use words that we already understand. So are you saying we already, it's unproblematic then what a fact is, well, that sounds a bit fishy. It doesn't sound any less mysterious than the word truth itself or corresponds. What's that? So nobody ever defined corresponds. Nobody ever defined fact. And so uh, it was thought to be unsatisfactory. So so then you got things like, uh, you know, um, more epistemological definitions like, uh, you know, like truth as provability. Something is true if you can establish it's true. If you have a, you know, if you can demonstrate, establish it, establish it. You know, if you've got the, you know, uncontrovertible evidence that, that tells you you have to believe that, you know, that's, that would be what truth is according to some views, uh, the later views. And it didn't seem to be as metaphysical as the ones that were, you know, but, um, but there, you know, there are objections to all of those, mm -hmm. all the definite. Then there was a, a kind of pragmatist theory of truth. So that uh, William James, I think, Peirce, oh no, William James. Uh, what um, the truth is uh, is um, what's pragmatically valuable to believe, and um, you know, uh, but they're all. They all can be, you know, they all can be, they're all either circular or they're, you know, counterexamples can be found. And so I just became, 
I mean, what I liked, you know, since I actually started out on this kind of non-physics stuff by reading Frege, I remember Frege saying, addressing in his famous paper, you know, on sense and reference, um, saying something about, in a way, true. He says that, he says that, you know, the, the, the proposition that it's true that snow is white is exactly the same as the proposition that snow is white. So when you say of a proposition that it's true, that second proposition, if you like, you know, the one which attributes truth to the first one, actually you end up with exactly the same proposition you had to begin with. So it's sometimes called the redundancy theory of truth. So I think that was the, as, as I know, the first account of truth that, you know, one might reasonably say was the beginning of deflationism about truth. But, you know, so then there are different um, ideas. And my own uh, proposal was, you know, not 100 miles from that not a million miles from that kind of Fragian idea, except uh, the idea that, his idea that it was exactly the same thing. The proposition that blah, 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 and the proposition that the proposition that blah, blah, blah is true, that they don't know difference between them just seems wrong. I mean, one of them has the concept of truth in it and the other one doesn't. So mm -hmm. how could it be exactly the same proposition, which is presumably a proposition is something that combines different concepts, you know, or the, a certain combination of concepts. But if one proposition has a certain concept in it and the other one doesn't, then how could they be the same? So I didn't, I thought that was going too far, but I thought uh, there was something to it. And uh, I think what is right is that just... Um, Everyone would agree that uh, um, you know the proposition that there's life on Mars, for example, is true if there is life on on Mars, and yeah. it's only true if there is life on Mars. Mm -hmm. And uh, similarly, the proposition that lying is wrong is true if lying is wrong and only if lying is wrong and so on and so on and so on. It does not matter what, you know, sentence of English you put in, you know, uh, as long as it's a, a statement, you know, not a question or something like that. Uh, that equivalence holds. So I called it the equivalence, the truth scheme and the equivalence schema. So that, uh, to put it schematically, um, to say of the proposition to attribute truth, the, oh, sorry, the proposition that attributes truth to the, to the proposition that P, uh, so it's, um, sorry, I'll put it this way. The proposition that P is true if and only if P. Could put it that way. That schema, it doesn't matter what you put for P, 
the proposition that P is true if and only if P. I just gave, we had some examples of that. Doesn't, you know, so there are no counterexamples to that. So, so that's the, uh, the idea is that, um, and this exploits Wittgenstein's views to some extent, that, uh, yeah, we're looking, we were looking for the meaning of the word true. It was always a giant mistake to think that its meaning came from a definition. In fact, very few words of ours, are def their meanings, do they come from a definition? I mean, it's one might naively at the beginning, before you really spend a lot of time thinking about it, somebody might think, well, surely every word has its meaning because of how it's defined. But of course, that can't be right because, uh, you know, you get an infinite regress because you have this and it's defined in terms of these things. Oh, well, these have to have a meaning. So they're defined in terms of something more basic. Yeah, but then those, you know, so you'd go on. Right. So it's obviously untenable. It can't be, you know. We, we, you have to have primitives if you wouldn't bottom that, out. Yeah. So you have to have some, and why not many, uh, words that get their meaning in some other way. And Wittgenstein's idea in the investigations was that uh, the meaning of a word is a matter of how it's used. There's some kind of regularity or rule in the language about a basic rule of how this word is used. And uh, that's what gives it its meaning. So in the case of the word true, you could say, well, what constitutes a, somebody's understanding the word true, using that word with its meaning, is they're accepting this, ex this equivalence I just mentioned. So whatever it is, they, if they accept that the proposition, whatever P is, if they accept that the proposition that P is true, if and only if P itself, then that's going to be the fundamental rule that explains everything else you do with a word. And um, and that's pretty remains. I mean, actually, it's become perhaps the dominant view. So uh, I'm quite proud of it. And, uh, you know, probably it's my most successful piece of work. But, uh, yeah, but it, it really did rely on Wittgenstein's... Uh, later Wittgenstein's views about the relationship between meaning and use. And then also the work I did on meaning is very uh, influenced by that idea of trying to, you know, trying to make it spell it, you know, flesh it out a bit. What does that mean? The meaning of a word is its use. What does he mean by use? You know, and I mean, just trying to make it a bit more, you know, um, clear mm -hmm. and, and and plausible. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah. So I think we got into this discussion of truth through von Frozen's anti-realism. And I think we're going to get back to truth. But what then is scientific realism, uh, since we've talked about anti-realism? Well, I mean, um, it's, uh, of course, you know, philosophers, you know, this is, it's all due to Dummett, actually. He started all this problem. But I mean, he, he's the one who started making a big fuss about domains. Well, are you a realist or you're an anti-realist? 
And so, um, and so now these days, everyone, whatever branch of philosophy they're interested in, whether it's ethics or philosophy of mathematics or whatever it is, or science or aesthetics, you know, whatever it is, you know, people want to say, I'm a realist about that, or I'm an anti-realist about that, you know, and uh, so it became a thing. And, um, but actually, one of the issues, I think one thing one has to recognize is that what counts as a realist or an anti-realist in a given domain may not really bear that much resemblance to what you know, what the dispute is between realists and anti-realists and other domains. So scientific, when people talk about scientific realism or anti-realism, I guess they do have in mind Van Frassen. And uh, and his, for him, he didn't use the word anti-realism. It was, I think, more like instrumentalism. But still, that would count as, a, you know. And, uh, but... In other domains, it's not necessarily parallel that there is mm -hmm. something called instrumentalism. I mean, um, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, one way of being an anti-realist, for instance, about in ethics is to say, uh, well, there simply aren't any absolute ethical facts. That is, that such and such is good, such and such way of treating people, you know, is bad, you know, you ought to do this, you ought to do that, you know, you ought not to tell lies, you ought, you know, that nothing, nothing is uh, absolutely good or bad or right or wrong. Everything or ought to be done. Uh, the most you can say is, it's relativism, the most you can say is, well, things are right or wrong relative to some moral perspective. And, uh, it could be right relative to this perspective and wrong relative to this other perspective. And so, um, I mean, there are, you know, relativists about, about ethics. And uh, I think um, Gilbert Harmon, you know, was somebody who pushed that. And so, of course, that's uh, a kind of anti-realism. Because actually, and this is, uh, you know, my colleague Paul Bogosian has done a lot to, to get people to see this, that, um, that uh, the kind of relativized statements, you know, such and such is wrong relative to such and such a framework, is not even really a statement of ethics anymore. Because what is a framework? A framework is just some collection of, of moral propositions. So the fact that lying is wrong relative to such and such a bunch of moral propositions is trivial. It's really just an entailment statement. And there's nothing normative about it at all. It doesn't tell you what you should do or what you shouldn't do. It just says, you know, well, if this is wrong, then this is wrong. So what? You know, that's not very interesting. So, um, so it's not the best. Well, I mean, there are other forms of anti-realism in in, in in ethics. Another, uh, my colleague Sharon Street, um, 
has argued that uh, what a given person, um, the sort of ethical facts uh, and what a given person uh, should do or is obliged to do or so on, is obliged not to do, um, is constituted in some way by what that person believes that they ought to do. So on her view, you take all of a person's ethical beliefs and uh, you, in some ways, idealize, you kind of got away with, you try and eliminate the contradictions and you make it more coherent. And then that will be what, you know, the facts that morally, you know, uh, relative to that, with that person, what that person ought to do. And so it's called constructivism. Um, so that's also, because I mean, one of the, uh, you know, me somewhat mysterious ways of identifying anti-realism is that it's, you know, some kind of, one is an anti-realist about certain kinds of fact if one thinks that those facts are mind-dependent, you know. So there's this term thrown around, some things are mind-independent, um, constructed by us, made up by us. They're not really out there independently of us, you know. Such and such is a social construct. One hears that all the time, you know. So, um, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, and of course in aesthetics you have another, even that's probably more, it's more palatable to people that aesthetics be, you be anti-realist with aesthetics than being anti-realist about morality because most people do hang on to having actual ethical beliefs you know they do think something no that's simply wrong you know mm -hmm. you shouldn't do that you shouldn't hurt people for, for your own amusement and no, i don't know lots of things seem to whereas with aesthetics you know whether something is beautiful or not you know, uh, you know that kind of thing you think well there's a it doesn't seem so crazy to say well you know when somebody says that, all they're really saying is that they like it. Right. You know, so that's the anti-realist thing. It's not. Um, so in different areas, I think, you know, and then in, 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 in arithmetic, um, I guess there, that maybe isn't so far from um, the scientific case, you know, uh, I mean, my colleague uh, Hartree Field. Uh, I mean, I forget well, how long a time ago it was. In the eighties, wrote a book uh, called "Science Without Numbers," and uh, because he was, uh, he didn't believe that there was such a thing as the number three, numbers as entities out there. You know, right? Uh, 
you know, I don't like this. I don't go along with this way of talking. I don't like it. But, you know, people talk about, oh, that would be spooky. It would be weird if there were these things, you know, they're not in space and time. They don't have any causal relations to anything and they're not causes or effects of anything. And yet they're really things, they're entities, they're objects. No, that's all mystery. They say, no, no, we have to, you know, it's sometimes called naturalism. You have to get rid of all that, you know. So the question was then, how can we somehow, we can't really deny that arithmetic is useful in science somehow. So how can we have our cake and eat it? That is somehow not throw away the utility and yet somehow manage to stay literally there aren't any such things. And um, so it's quite ingenious and it's, but it's a bit like with Van Frassen, he wants to say, look, you can still do science. Um, and of course it's useful and you can, you know, you do in exactly the same way as before. You deploy the scientific method in exactly the same way as before to try and, you know, but all it, but he, and Van Frassen, he says, look, the only, the only big difference is that in the end, you know, when you've got something that, you know, fits all the data and everything else, you can't say, okay, we got the truth. You just have to say, well, we've got something that's empirically adequate. It's going to predict everything we want to predict. It's going to do that, you know, it's going to have the kind of utility of a terrifically true theory, but doesn't, not going to be, we're not going to take that step. We don't need to take it. And um, yeah, so, uh, but it's kind of interesting that variation from domain to domain. But um, I mean, I've sometimes thought, you know, while I'm doing this seminar that, it feels a kind of, uh, I feel, um, what's the right word for it? Um, somehow in the wrong, I feel like somehow I'm not being honest because uh, why would I give a seminar, you know, on that topic? I mean, because I, I myself think that this obsession that, philosophers have with these terms, realism and anti-realism and labeling themselves or labeling different people in that way. It's just a huge error. Oh, really? And that, and that uh, I mean, jokingly, I, I think I even wrote this in a paper that uh, anyone, any philosopher caught using these words should be drummed out of the APA. Oh, know, wow. That, because uh, I just think it doesn't, first of all, you know, philosopherese has never settled on a, any definite meaning. So the result is it's all over the place, how different philosophers use it. So there is no meaning it has in, in the language, even the language of philosophers. So, uh, you know, people mean different things by it. And so the arguments are really, and it's all, they're all at cross purposes and, uh, and it's all just causes confusion. It doesn't do any good at all. And, and, um, and, uh, and then 
Well, then it leads to further, you know, non, you know, pseudo problems, which is then, okay, what is the best way to define realism then? You know, as if there is a correct way. I mean, you've got a bunch of different definitions. Definitions aren't correct or, you know, definitions, especially of a jargon term, you're allowed to say what it means. So you don't, it's not a question of finding the right one. Um, it's a fine, it's a matter of, you may be, uh, so you could say it's a matter of finding one that everyone would agree to go by. And, uh, but even then, it just seems pointless to me. I mean, I think because in a lot of these areas, I mean, take ethics as an example. There are real problems, you know, uh, you know, what does the word ought as used in ethics mean? So there are questions about meaning and semantics. There are questions about metaphysics. You know, what is, are there facts about what's right and wrong, absolute facts? And what is the nature of such facts, if there are such facts? Uh, and then there are questions in epistemology, you know, uh, do we have some methodology for discovering, you know, what moral beliefs we should have and which ones we shouldn't have? And and uh, suppose we don't. What, 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 what should we do? You know, so these are, I think, genuine questions. And uh, you might, somebody looking at a collect, certain collection of answers might say, oh, you know, that makes you a realist or that makes you an anti-realist. And I'd say, well, I don't know, whatever you want. I mean, I don't care. The, the important thing is the answer to those questions, not slapping some other label on it and over there where there's a huge difference of opinion between people uh, as to when that label should be applied. Um, just uh, stay closer to the ground and say, okay, what are the answers to the obviously genuine questions? that arise in this area. Genuine puzzles. Um, no need to summarize it or to try and summarize it in a way, especially when it's not, not nobody's really going to understand what, you know, everyone is going to have a different view about what you're actually saying when you're summarizing it using those words. Mm -hmm. So um, I just think they do more harm than good. In the case of mathematics, you said that uh, you didn't go along with this way of speaking when people say, oh, abstract objects, platonic objects, they're spooky, they don't like them. Yeah. And you, in I think I'm correct in guessing that you don't really like the idea of this naturalist program, is that? That's right, that's true, yeah. I think, uh, I think that's kind of... Um too scientistic, if you put it that way, you know. Uh, you know, science doesn't determine everything we should believe. I mean, ethics is an example. I mean, do we really look to scientists to tell us, you know, to give us any even the slightest insight about what the moral facts are? I mean, there are lots, you know, so, so science is not the be-all and end-all. And, uh, you know, I think the fact is we... You know, there is a way we ordinarily use the word exists. And uh, I don't think there's any reason for changing it. Uh, there are, you know, it means there are some of those. There exist, you know, somebody might say, uh, 
you know, is there a prime number between this and that? And you say, and you think about it and say, yes, there is one. There exists a prime number. Okay, so, uh, and if there doesn't exist any numbers at all, how could there be any prime numbers? You know, so I just don't see anything. It just seems the most normal thing to me to say, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, uh, not to have some principle because the thing isn't floating around somewhere, you know, you might bump into it, mm -hmm. that nothing could exist except that kind of thing. I mean, there are lots of things that we talk about that exist. I mean, not just there is a number satisfying these conditions, but, um, you know, uh, um, I don't know, um, possibilities. There are, there are some things are actual and some things are merely possible. And so the, you know, you might say of something which not actual, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, there, there was a possibility that uh, the, the sun have 10 planets, you know, so, okay, so we talk about exist, there exist certain possibilities, you know, and so that's another abstract thing. But on that accord, you know, there's no reason why we should not, to my view, just say, okay, you know, um, and, uh, and I'm sure that one can just come up with lots of examples where uh, of um, what appear to be things where we have nominal expressions to pick them out. You know, we use names or, you know, there's a name for it, you know, it might not, where, where, and we, we believe that, you know, we have a use for, you know, we think they, we would say ordinarily they exist, but they're abstract. They're not made of concrete stuff. Um, so, you know, yeah, I think, uh, there's just somehow nothing to be gained. I mean, I think that people who think there's something to be gained see it as a kind of metaphysical simplification to get rid of them, you know. But, you know, I don't... Um, uh, yeah. Um, now, you said that we don't turn to scientists for answer when you were talking about problems with scientism and naturalism you said that we don't turn to scientists for answers about moral facts and i think that's likely because uh scientists at least when they're wearing their scientist hats uh probably don't treat the world as if it contains such things as moral facts but well, i take might, it that might be i'm sorry i just i don't i think you know a scientist could be an extremely moral person so have moral convictions. I mean, mm. you know, I, mean, I don't see why, you know, like everybody else, you know, the things you think people should do and people sh things people shouldn't do to each other, people should do to, you know, people should care about the welfare of others to some extent, or they shouldn't do this, or, you know, and I don't think there's anything, uh, any reason to think a scientist is going to be any less moral than a, a philosopher or a doctor right. or anybody else for that matter, or a priest anyone you know mm -hmm. but 
I take it that you think that there are moral facts for the same reason that you would say that there are prime numbers between there's one between one and five or two between one and five, just because that's our ordinary way of using um, the yeah, I existing. Think, I think, I, I mean, one thing, yeah, I think you're getting at is that um, I think anyone who has, you know, moral beliefs, uh, anyone who, say, believes that lying is wrong, I mean, prima facie, not that it can't be overwhelmed somehow by other things, by other things sometimes, so it doesn't mean in any circumstances, but, you know, but, but before you get to further detail on the face of it, yeah, it's wrong, it should be avoided. And uh, I think anyone who believes that, uh, what is it to believe something? To believe something, well, the something is a proposition. It's to regard the proposition as true. That's what it is to believe something. To believe mm -hmm. something and to believe that the thing is true, it means the same thing. But a, a fact is nothing more than a proposition that's true. So you can't have beliefs in things and yet somehow, you know, say, oh, there aren't, I don't think there are any facts, of course, I just believe, you know, I mean, uh, unless you have some very weird conception of what a fact is. Sure. Uh, I don't see, uh, you know, I think, yeah, so I think, although there are arguments, uh, you know, in the literature uh, that are against um, moral facts, uh, I think they all go wrong. They just, you know, make mistakes. So, and but I think certainly ordinary people who do have beliefs about moral matters, you know, you can't. They are committed, whether they know it or not, to the existence mm -hmm. of moral facts. And maybe don't put it that way. Mm -hmm. Now, one distinction, one reason why somebody to play devil's advocate might not think that there are moral facts might go something like this. I mean, we think that there are physical facts about, I don't know, the, the electrons that make up this computer because there's some agreed upon uh, objective way that we might go about investing it through exper investigating it through experimentation or observation to determine what the laptop is made, made up of. But I don't know how we could determine whether or not lying is wrong truly is a fact the way that we yeah. could determine that this laptop is made up of atoms is a fact yeah 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 well that's i mean that line of thought is is quite similar to something i mentioned earlier on when i was saying well you know there were people who who found uh the famous you know traditional correspondence theory of truth to be, you know, too metaphysical and not really clear what the terms mean, correspondence. And so uh, what became more popular were epistemological theories, so which identify, uh, say, uh, truth or facts with uh, what can be verified. So, um, so, and so, yeah, if you have that notion of truth and fact, that in order to be true, well, it's in order to be true, something has to be establishable, verifiable, provable. 
then then you might lead you to say, well, I'm not sure there are any facts. But um, and uh, you know, but if you think that it's seems intuitively overly doesn't seem to be any contradiction in the very idea that uh, you know we take something to be true and uh, we believe it but we haven't verified you know we haven't we haven't I mean something could be out there a fact and we haven't discovered it yet and maybe we never will I mean isn't that perfectly coherent you know that something be true and not just that it, nobody's actually has you know proven that it's true or whatever the the non-mathematical equivalent of proving it is I mean coming out with a really very very uh, powerful compelling Re evidence or reasons for thinking that it's true that uh, that make you completely convinced that you know so surely are things that I mean we wouldn't call it discovery if we'd already you know there was something we could could suspect that it was true you know we could believe it but say we haven't had you know absolutely ultimate confirmation like I mean like for instance let me give an example from mathematics I guess there are these things, uh, maybe what I'm saying is out of date. Um, what's that? Is it Goldbach's conjecture? Yeah, Goldbach's conjecture. Every even number is the sum of two prime numbers. Okay. Uh, nobody's been able to prove that. Uh, nobody's ever shown that it's false either. Um, you know, but, you know, it's been fed into giant computer mainframes and they've tested it up to gazillions and gazillions and they never found a counterexample. So many people would say, well, look, I mean, I'm, surely it's true, but we don't have the proof of it. I mean, I just, I mean, it would be, wouldn't it be amazing if it could checked it up to billions and billions and you know but somehow oh off you know way out in numerical space <laughs> there is a counterexample I mean so but even you know so it's uh but of course in the physical world that's even in a way more obvious I mean the the stuff happening in the universe a hell of a long way from here presumably there are facts Mm -hmm. We have no idea what they are. But those are in principle verifiable. They only become facts only when we've somehow come to recognize them. Facts for us. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. the facts were there waiting to be discovered. And, uh, you know, that's obviously one could think of lots of examples like that, you know. Um, it's the fact that the Earth is spherical not flat okay but that okay it was a fact well before you know people started believing that it was um you know eventually became verified but certainly wasn't at the time when you know 
for a long, you know, while it was, it was there, you know. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, so I think that, uh, you know, yeah, that we should uh, just keep to the idea of a fact as a true proposition and, uh, and recognize that something can be true uh, I mean, just going back to the deflationary view that I mentioned, sorry, my version of it, that we're always going to accept the proposition that P is true, if and only if P, whatever we put in for P. Um, there's nothing... In that, if that's really the key to the meaning, the essence of the meaning of the true, there's nothing there to suggest that, oh, there's a further thing to, that has to be the case to count as true in terms of verification. There's no indication of that at all. It's got nothing, to, you know. Truth is a much simpler concept than that, involving provability or anything like that. It just doesn't enter into it. Hmm. I guess I, I'm I'm stumped then on how to continue pushing back because I wanted to, I mean, what I wanted to push back against was, well, I mean, for take lying is wrong. I mean, I was going to ask, what are some alternative ways that we could determine whether or not this proposition is a fact if we can't verify it or we can't prove it? If we can't, how do we know something like lying is wrong is a fact? if we yeah. don't have those options no you're yeah it's it's uh maybe we shouldn't say we know it okay yeah i mean it doesn't mean we can't believe it mm -hmm. it's a gut feeling you know people talk about and i have some sympathy for this you know moral intuitions a certain you know i mean i think you know one of the interesting things i think is important about uh you know, there was a there was a doctrine about ethics uh, popularized at the beginning of the century, 20th, of the 20th century, um, like positivists you say this, uh, um, called emotivism. And emotivism was a very kind of radical view that when you come out with some kind of ethical claim, you say, this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, blah, 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 blah. This utterance that you make is nothing but an emotional outburst. It doesn't um, express a proposition. It can't be true or false. There can't be any such facts. You can't even do logical deductions from it. It doesn't have that kind of meaning. Uh, all it is is thus, it's equivalent to saying, hooray for blah, 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 or, you know, you know boo for so-and-so. In fact, it was sometimes called the hooray boo theory. So that, that's all you were doing. You were just emoting when you come out with these things. You're not really saying anything, expressing a belief. There are no beliefs there are no beliefs, there are no propositions, there are no facts, there's no truth, 
was just this expression of feeling. And uh, so I think that uh, that's obviously that's too, going too far. That's, um, but uh, there is an important insight in there, I think, which should be preserved, not the whole thing thrown away. That there is a kind of a, a connection, a non-trivial connection between what you're convinced of, morally speaking, and how you feel about things and, and whether you, you know, I mean, if you're, if you come across or hear of or see a certain way of treating other people that really makes you sick, it just, you just have a complete revulsion, you know, that's a feeling then you are going to think and say, that's bad. So I think that is, in a way, the origin, rather than some methodology, you know, that's the origin of gut moral beliefs, you know, moral intuition. They're going to found it. In, and they, I think, people doing ethics think that they in some way have a, have a role which is kind of parallel to the observation reports in science you know and then you build on top of those so here you start out with these gut things you know you know if something you know on the other hand you know if you if you're convinced that a certain thing ought to be done then going along with that intrinsically will be an inclination to do it you know so there are these connections between uh, this kind of normative language and what you're inclined to do, what you, how you feel. And I think that that's really the way in. Now, that doesn't mean that in the end you can, you can get to knowledge. I mean, because, uh, you know, individuals will have these moral intuitions and connected to the way certain things make them feel either feel bad or feel, you know, feel good and gives them a sense of approval or disapproval. So they, they have normative beliefs, but, um, but they're not going to ever really be objective, you know, because, you know, because, uh, it's, it's, everybody knows how much disagreement there is. You know, even in the even in the ground level, you know, it's not like science. In the science, when the observation claims are made by one scientist, oh, the needle is pointing at the number three on this dial. Well, everybody else would agree with that as well. So it's not they're not controversial. Whereas these so-called moral intuitions, well, you know, some people say yes, other people say no. I don't agree with that. They have a different feeling when they see those things. So, so you're not going to get anything like, uh, you know, in the end, a methodology for discovering things that people can all get around. And now we know this. It's not in that way. It's not at all like uh, a lock science. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be. Uh, but but still, it's an important phenomenon. Um, I mean. I think, you know, what's, yeah, so I don't think, uh, 
we should care that much whether our whether people's moral beliefs are true or not because um I don't think anything hinges on whether somebody's moral beliefs are true or not true. Um, what matters is not whether their beliefs are true or not true or whether your beliefs are true or not true. What matters is that you're having those beliefs because it's you're having those beliefs that's going to determine what you do. And whether the beliefs are true or not is not going to make a damn difference to anything. Mm -hmm. That's very different from the empirical case, of course, where, you know, if you act partly on a belief, you know, uh, if I believe, you know, if I, if I want a beer and I believe there's beer in the fridge, then okay, I'm going to go to the fridge to get the, the thing out. So, and it matters if it turns out the belief was false and there isn't one there, you know, so uh, things go wrong in, in practical decision-making. But in the case of uh, uh, moral beliefs, there is no downside to the beliefs being false rather than true, because all the effect, the only effect the belief has is on what it's, I mean, it's an important thing is that the person is led to do things by their beliefs. And so you can, you know, you can quite rightly care what beliefs people have and wish they didn't have that belief because it's going to do something bad, you know, lead to something bad or whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, truth is not important and knowledge is not important. Just simply doesn't matter. Well, I hope that you'll humor me with one last question on this topic because I, mm. I am still trying to understand just what, just what a moral fact is though. And so we can imagine and like an alternative history in which maybe humans evolved to be really cutthroat individuals and they don't live in societies like ours where it really is good and util to lie. And so they, to use your language, um, they really have a gut feeling and intuition that makes them believe it is right to lie to the same degree that we believe that it's wrong to lie simpliciter. And surely, I mean, if lying is wrong corresponds in potentially to a fact, then lying is right can't also be a fact. And yeah. I mean, maybe you're adopting a sort of Williamsonian epistemicism regarding like the moral facts, like there is one, one of these two, us or that we or them are correct, and we just have no way of knowing it. Uh, one of them does correspond to a, a fact. Yeah. Is that accurate or is that how you view it? Well, uh, uh, yeah, I guess so. I do think, you know, um, um, it's, uh, I'm, let me just think, is that what I think? Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I, you know, yeah, I think I do, uh, I don't see any particular paradox or something where one's so deep that one has to give up the law of excluded middle, you know, either P or not P for whatever you put in for P. So, yeah, I'm, so either it's wrong or it's not. And, uh, and okay, so, uh, and, um, but having a really justified 
view on that matter, especially one that would, you know, in the end amount to knowledge, uh, is uh, is impossible. So, but yeah, I think um, that's fine. You know, it can be. All you're saying is either P or not P. You're not saying I know which one is the right one, or I could even know. Uh, just um, it's uh, yeah. So I guess I agree. I am driven to say that. <laughs> okay, interesting. Well, thank you so much uh, for talking with me. This has been a huge no, pleasure no, on my behalf. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. You've made it enjoyable. Thank you. Hold on, geeselings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.